0: hello and welcome to the narratives podcast i'm just wendy and i'll be your host alongside my team member alex i'm also a podcast team member of the narrative medicine project which is an initiative of mcmaster university health science students interested in exploring and promoting the many benefits of a narrative-based approach to healthcare. this podcast is one of the ways that we're bringing our project to you Each episode, we will feature an interview with an individual who shares our interest in narrative medicine, in the hopes of gaining new perspectives and insights. We will also discuss our book club choices each month and other related current
1: events. Beautiful introduction, Jess. I'm Alex, and in this episode, we're with Professor Eric. He did his undergrad in bio and psych in Manitoba, where he was born, before doing a master's in psych and coming here to lovely McMaster for his PhD in medical sciences. He's been an instructor in the BHC program since 2011, which is well over a decade. Well, Eric, you know me as a student in your class, and I know you as a great professor. For our listeners at home, though, could you tell us more about what you do both inside and outside the classroom?
2: Well, uh, I've uh, been teaching in the BHSC program for over 10 years now. I think it's closer to 11. And I've been uh, getting into more and more teaching of different courses. Uh, When I'm outside of the class, uh, I'm usually meeting with students. And I have a number of students that I do projects with and thesis projects, so keeps me very busy. And I also do other Uh, things at the university I'm the chair of the animal research ethics board and have been connected with that board for 15 or 20 years already so uh, lots of things to keep me busy
0: great and overall how would you say the experience was as a professor and on the animal research board well I've found that uh, a lot of things that I've done
2: seem to resonate well with what I've been doing academically over the years. uh, I started off as a uh, research technician doing work with animals and certainly uh, that has developed and I've grown in the, the roles that I've been in and everything I'm doing now takes advantage of all of the things I've done before which tells me I'm in the right spot
1: <laughs> it always feels good to know that you're in the right place I'm curious though could you tell us more about what inspired you to join the ethics board in the first place
2: Well, I've been uh, working with animals for 30, 35 years or so, and it's always been a critical thing to do it properly. And it's usually been my job to do the the animal work. And I've over the years realized that my uh, hands are not as uh, capable as they used to be. And so I thought I would use my experience to help with making sure animal work is done properly and it it is a a something that you need to have a lot of experience to do properly to do well and so my background really fits very uh you know perfectly with uh, being on the ethics board and then uh, when they asked me to uh, be the chair i jumped all over it and uh, said definitely that really helps because the kinds of uh, things that I've seen over the years gives me the context to be able to uh, help with uh, providing suggestions on how to improve, how to pr- reduce the use of animals, and and how to do it just
0: better, uh, you know, at the lab level. That's really awesome. I know, like in the context of narrative medicine, narrative medicine is often applied towards humans, but. I think it'd be interesting to think about how it's applied towards animals as well, that kind of kindness and empathy aspect. So I know you mentioned that experience is a really important thing for, to be in your position. So could you also talk a bit about the role or the importance of empathy in your role as well?
2: With uh, When
0: anyone works with animals, they
2: can't help but to have a connection and a respect for the animal and that i think is one of the the fundamental drives uh, that kind of is behind what i do with with animals over the years is that i want to make sure that they get the the best possible experience uh, out of what we're doing and and as an animal researcher i understand the responsibility that goes with working with animals and the privilege that comes with working with animals. So my uh, job and my own personal uh, feelings towards it really have helped to ensure that the animals are treated properly and that they don't get into a position where they have undue stress. Uh, pain, that kind of thing. Uh, And most of the stuff that I've worked with animals in the past decade has actually been on cancer pain. And so that is definitely the pointy end of the stick with regards to ethics. And that I think was one of the reasons that I was brought into the animal ethics sphere at McMaster is because I was working on a project and a series of projects that were at the edge where you had to be very careful with what you did and so my uh, background and my uh, personality kind of fit very well with that and having that empathy for the animals I think is an important thing that Anyone working with animals should have just the same with working with people. If you don't have that empathy with patients, you're not going to be very effective and you're not going to be well received. And so with animals, they can't say no. So I have to take on that responsibility as well to draw the line for what we can and can't do uh, at, at every single case.
1: Thank you for telling us about that Eric and I think it's very important whenever you talk about your research on cancer pain because I'm a follower of your vlogs and your YouTube channel so I know that you've been on a journey of your cancer diagnosis and I want to ask how has that personal journey affected you as a cancer researcher?
2: Well, certainly it had a certain level of, of irony. The fact that I uh, was treated at the same facility that I worked for 15 years doing cancer research uh, was uh, very, very noticed. Uh, all of my uh, colleagues at the Cancer Center uh, were the ones that were involved with my care and treatment there. And I still go there uh, for treatment uh, like actually i'm i'm not being treated actively i'm just being followed now but it's changed my perspective on the kinds of things that need to be looked at just because i've now had the other side of the coin uh, as a person with cancer and with cancer pain it's certainly changed the um the list of things things that are important to me as a researcher. And it, it goes the other way as well as the, the things that I've done in my research change how I view being a patient. And that that was never something that
0: I had expected. Wow, I found that really, really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. I was just wondering, Bunny chance, could you go a little more in depth on that? Just talking about how your views specifically have changed as a researcher and as a patient? My, my views as a researcher have always been, in,
2: well, in the past, have been focused on the biological mechanisms, finding interesting and new targets to look at and developing the science behind how these things worked. And I've done cancer research in a dish in an animal, and I've even been involved in a clinical trial. But that changed when I was the patient. I now see that uh, the way the uh, process operates at a cancer center when you're treating a patient really needs to focus on the patient experience rather than the patient mechanisms. And so as a, a, a scientist, I now am quite acutely aware of the other side of the coin and that I should think about what it is the patient is experiencing. And if I'm thinking about mechanisms related to trying, trying to treat cancer, I also have to include that experience of the patient and will it be... Uh, difficult, you know, if if I would look at developing a new therapeutic, is it even valuable to do that if I haven't thought about what that patient experiences?
1: Yeah, the patient experience is definitely important to consider. And I think that's what we're trying to do with the Narrative Medicine podcast, because I mean, our courses, you know, focus on the therapeutics and a the molecular level. But as a narrative medicine initiative, we're trying to spread stories from clinicians and patients and everyone involved in healthcare. And I know on your YouTube channel, you love sharing stories too. So I'm wondering if there's anything you're specifically trying to accomplish as a quote-unquote YouTuber, if I may call you that.
2: Initially, I started sharing uh, videos and uh, working on my blog just to keep the family up-to-date with what was going on here. Uh, And I have family in different parts of the country. So it was a useful tool, and I've had a website slash blog for probably 30 years, uh, and uh, I've moved it in different to different platforms uh, over time, but mostly it was developed so that my family could see what's going on with my kids, what we're doing, what kinds of things uh, you know, we keep busy with, my hobbies, that kind of stuff. Uh, but it's slowly developed more into a sharing tool that's, not specifically related to the kids anymore because they're in their 20s. So, you know, that's that's their job now to keep people up to date. But uh, just the v- vision for the blog was really to provide my experiences, particularly with going through cancer and what kinds of things I'm doing and what things I'm experiencing. So kinda, I think the purpose of the blog has changed over time and for my youtube channels i have a couple of them actually Uh, they're very minimally updated unfortunately takes a lot of time but a lot of the things on my personal channel were related to my experiences in the last two years i have a more business channel if you want to call it that where i share some videos related to things students can use to improve what they're doing and keep on top of stuff. I have made a number of videos on uh, referencing and things like that. So I'd like to actually beef that up a little bit more. Uh, It
0: just takes a lot of time. Wow, thank you for sharing that. I'm actually a pretty big fan of your blog as well. And I find it really interesting that you said that you started over 30 years ago. So I'm just a bit interested about the impact of your blog, because I know you mentioned that you kind of transitioned to doing it for others, and I would definitely like to talk about that as well. But first, I would like to hear a bit about the impact of your blog on you, on your experience as a researcher, and then eventually on your experience as a patient as well.
2: Yeah, that's an interesting direction to look at things. Uh, I started doing the blog, as I said, just to keep people informed as to what the kids are doing and, you know, put pictures there so the family can see them. But it changed to be more of uh, kind of an artistic expression, if you want to look at it that way. Uh, It became a way of sharing uh, what was going on with me and being able to... Uh, Point out strange things that are happening, interesting things, Uh, particularly with the YouTube channel, uh, it became a way of just saying what I felt. And that's something I want to do more of for sure. I think one of the most popular videos I did was actually a walk and talk kind of video I did when I went hiking uh, over a year ago. Uh, and a lot of people actually replied to me to to say that they really felt that was useful. And I've seen many uh, YouTube channels and blogs of people that have gone through similar cancer experiences. And I've Found that was very useful to me. So there's kind of been that connection between what I'm putting on my channels and what I'm seeing other people's channels do. And so it's kind of um, turning into almost a community of stories. And that is really where I'd like it to go uh, to be able to have my story be useful to other people. And I've actually. Virtually met by watching their their YouTube channels, many people that have had similar experiences, uh, none of whom were scientists. So I think that's kind of my niche: is that you know a scientist going through uh, something that I've worked on for years. So it's 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 been very interesting, and it has had an impact, kind of, on me equally as uh, having an impact on other people.
1: Yeah, I think that's really great. And I guess that's one of the powerful things about storytelling, because everyone has unique experiences, but you can always find commonalities with your own journey. Anyways, I know you said you haven't been that active on your YouTube channel, which saddens me because every day I check my YouTube feed, hoping to see a new video from you. And it's left me wondering, how has your life been affected by the pandemic so far? And will you be releasing a new video anytime soon?
2: Well, I do plan to make some videos soon. I have a list of things I want to do (laughs) and I just haven't got to them yet. Uh, The pandemic has really changed things. uh, I think for everybody, you know, there's no way around that. But I think I started the pandemic differently than most because uh, when I started the pandemic, I was terminally ill. I was told I only had three to six months to live. So when I left the university, when they shut down live classes, that was going to be it for me. Like I knew I wasn't coming back. I didn't clear out my office because I actually wasn't there the day they shut down. I was actually at home doing work and I didn't have classes. So my office... (laughs) got very dusty. (laughs) I had to actually buy some things that I left in my office because there was no real reason to go into the university. And there were kind of things like pens that I use and stuff, but that whole shutdown uh, and switch over to, um, you know, you know, doing things on zoom and doing things on teams was actually very functional for me, compared to many other people, because you may not know, but I had several surgeries on my vocal cords in the last year that actually uh, was trying to correct some of the damage that was done uh, from the cancer. And I couldn't speak very loudly. And that is a big thing for someone that talks for a living. And the second surgery I had certainly helped. Uh, It was much, much better. And uh, going online allowed me to work with a microphone right under my chin. (laughs) And in person, that's not the same. And so switching over to being online really did help me to transition to the new reality of my voice. And if you watch my YouTube videos, you can probably hear the change in my voice over time. And it's really been drastic from my ears. Uh, And that's maybe not so much for other people's ears. I just hear it differently because it's in my head. And I think the pandemic was really Uh, functional for me because of that switch over now that we're looking to go back in person things are actually a little bit I don't know I'm getting a little nervous about doing it full-on teaching in person my voice doesn't last that long compared to what it used to I could do three three three-hour classes before and yeah I'd have kind of a rough voice by the end of it but not likely going to be the same come January if we do everything in person so I've been able to kind of develop some strategies for that and I'm working on ways to improve things so the pandemic changed what I did for my teaching for research I pretty well haven't done much other than help students do their own projects and I'm working on you know, developing some pedagogical research on how learning happens in the kind of things that I do for my teaching. So that is something that I could do uh, without having to uh, physically be at the university. So I've transitioned away from some things, transitioned into some things that have more long-term uh, ability to do regardless of how I do them. So I think the the pandemic has been more of an impact on me than many people, just because of the timing of everything. And the fact that I was not planning to come back and I still taught, and last year's students will probably know that uh, I actually uh, was in class Uh, within a few weeks of me having the tumor removed from my neck and during the time that I was doing chemo and radiation, they still saw me in class. So uh, it's interesting how it's developed, but I'm good with
0: how it's going right now and where we're taking things in the future. Thank you for sharing that. And yes, I do remember I was a student last year. So (laughs) I do have memory of that. Just going back onto that, I find it really interesting that you said that you left school during the pandemic with the idea that three, four months, right, is what you said. And you still decided to continue teaching. How was that experience for you? Could you just expand a bit more on that? Okay. Yeah,
2: the uh, uh, When I left the university, when they shut down classes, you know, I was terminally ill. I had finished all the treatment that they were going to be able to give me. And they said, get your affairs in order. And this is quite common in certain cancers. And I have anaplastic thyroid cancer, and it was stage 4B, which meant it was already metastasized. And it, it starts at stage four. There's not much you can do, and we did everything. So they said, "Take care of stuff." I even bought the plaque for the cemetery. It it was that,
1: and, you know, it was
2: that level. Uh, so just having that happen, it made me realize that I had to think about what I wanted to do with the time that I had left. So, I figured out that what I was doing for teaching was what I wanted to do. You know, it caused a little bit of trouble around home. You know, you are going to do what? You know, but that's just what it made sense to me. It was what was important to me is to continue teaching rather than to sit around and watch the calendar go by, because that definitely was not my style and I like teaching and I like being in the class, whether it's virtual or not, you know, it's the way it was, but I didn't want to just stop and not do it because that's who I am. And that's what I became important to me is to be who I was and continue to be me through the whole thing. And that is a very unusual thing for people that have been diagnosed with cancer because many times the cancer defines them and you define yourself by the disease. That's definitely not my style. And yes, I kind of fell into that to some extent is that, I let me be a cancer patient, and that's who I was for a bit. Figure that one out pretty quickly. That's not who I am. I am this weird person that does things in weird ways, and it's very functional because being terminally terminally ill, the weirdness paid off because weird things happened, and I'm no longer terminally ill. In fact, we can't find any cancer whatsoever. And Next week, I get an MRI to validate that yet again. So I like being me. I like being weird. I'm good at it. And that's just the way it is. And so that's how kind of that experience went for me.
1: Thank you for telling us your entire story. I love everything you said. It was very inspirational. And I'm so thankful that you're still here with us today. And we hope your next MRI scan goes well.
0: Once again, thank you for sharing that, Eric. That was really, really powerful. And I know that whoever hears that is definitely going to be similarly inspired by that as well. We're nearing a close to our interview. I would just like to know how do you think narrative medicine might have helped you throughout your journey as uh, a researcher, as a patient, uh, and with your blog? And uh, finally, what are your overall thoughts on narrative medicine as a whole? Well, telling my story
2: and listening to other people's stories was one of the anchors that I was able to hang on to over the last two years, because it's it's been a roller coaster. There's There's no way around that. And just the uh, ability to listen and to you know express what was going on is what got me through it. And if I had just left things as I'm patient, you know, hear people that are treating me, do what you have to do, you take control. That 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 wouldn't work for me. So just being able to uh, be open to the stories of everybody else has helped me to both kind of figure out my story. It helped me express my story and has helped me to uh, connect with other people going through the same thing. And I've spoken to many people and had video calls with many people across the country and down the States that have had the same kind of experienced the same cancer and had no idea where to start uh, and to get things figured out. They were told, this is it, you're done, you know, essentially too bad, so sad, you know, like just watch the calendar go by and that uh, kind of uh, experience is not something you should go through on your own and being able to share and hear other experiences has really been helpful to many people and i'm on a in a uh, group of uh, an organization that's i think is from the states called Thyca, which is thyroid cancer uh, survivors group and i'm a part of this very unusual subgroup that's the anaplastic thyroid cancer survivors because Previous to the last maybe five years, nobody survived. And there's been so many advances and you don't know about this if you are just going to get treated as a cancer patient. If you don't hear the stories, if you don't connect, you're not gonna know about this. And one example is uh, when when I got diagnosed, I found somebody on Twitter who actually happened to be in London, uh, Ontario, who uh, was going through the same thing. And he was very dejected about things because uh, he had not known there were many options available. And I uh, you know, connected with him and started private messaging uh, over only two days uh, about this and had a wonderful conversation. He had decided not to do anything because that's what he felt was appropriate for him. And I just kind of connected through Twitter and had messaging back and forth. Uh, with him, and it was really useful for me, and I think useful for him to hear that there is some hope for the people that have this cancer. He died two days later, unfortunately, because he was at very very late stage. And I even got to the point where I watched his funeral online. It it was during the pandemic, so that's just the way things happen, but it was a really wonderful connection. Never met, just communicated our stories back and forth. And I think it was a a benefit to both of us. So that was just one kind of an example of how stories make the difference. And for me, it really was powerful. It was sad. I'd never met him, but had this kind of, emotional connection just from messaging and sharing similar things because he also had a plaque that he bought for the cemetery and it was virtually the same as, as mine it was kind of funny uh, and it may have been just because we were both in the same country but you know it was a an interesting thing i have yet to go see the plaque but someday i might do that
0: Thank you so much for for coming to this interview. The information that you shared, I think is really, really meaningful. And I think it can definitely help a lot of people and also demonstrate the importance of narrative medicine and the impact that it can have on all kinds of journeys, such as th- those that you had.
1: Yeah, Eric, as Jess said, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. And thank you, our listeners, for joining us today for The Narratives Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed our conversation with Professor Eric at McMaster and that you'll join us again next time. Have a great day. The Narratives Podcast is a production of The Narrative Medicine Project. Episodes of the podcast are released on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. To learn more about The Narrative Medicine Project and for all our latest updates, please follow us on Instagram and Facebook and subscribe to our website at www.narrativemedproject.com By the way, Eric, what's your favorite place to eat on campus?
2: Oddly, uh, it's the Tim's uh, in the MDCL. <laughs> They're closed right now, but when they reopen, you'll you'll probably find it could be very useful. It, it's convenient. It's Uh, The people there were always fun to chat with and I really got used to going there a lot. That may be a bad thing, but (laughs) I went there a lot.
0: What's your go-to order? Uh,
2: I usually get a a muffin and a coffee just because that's, that's what I enjoyed from there. And uh, it was a simple thing to start off the day, even though, the BHSE office has two coffee machines and it's available anytime. I like to walk down and just kind of get out of the office.